Hello and welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Brain, the new podcast that helps you navigate the cloud with insight from some of the top minds in the industry. I'm Alid Sage. And I'm Alistair Hodge. We work as consultants for CloudSoft, giving advice and hands-on assistance to help customers with cloud strategy and adoption, application architecture and modernization, and generally unlocking the many business benefits that the cloud promises. Today, we're talking to David Cairns, Head of Innovation at Fujitsu UK, about the importance of human-centric innovation, how the cloud helps, and crucially, whether his COVID vaccine improved his 5G reception. I know mine has. Excellent. Without further ado, let's meet David. Welcome, everyone, to our first Cloudy with a Chance of Brain podcast. Today, we are talking with David, David Cairns, Head of Innovation at Fujitsu. Hi, David. Alistair, hello. Good Friday to you. Thank you. And we've also got Alad. Hi. Great to be here. And me, Alistair. Uh, you have a very interesting job title, David. You're head of innovation. Uh, I have to ask, are you Tony Stark? Funny you should say that. My uh, 10-year-old made me watch Spider-Man Homecoming last night. But unrelated to that, no, I'm not. I neither have the money nor the looks. Uh, no, you can't tell that from the podcast. Um, but no, yes, the title is uh, is just a title, isn't it? My uh, current manager named me an innovation evangelist, and that has unfortunately uh, stung me somewhat in terms of uh, bottom of my signature and email. I, I get asked the question, what is that? Um, effectively, I'm an enthusiast. So yes, an evangelist, the old French word for somebody that uh, evangelizes. And that's really what I do is evangelize innovation and make it happen. But uh, the grandiose title of uh, head of innovation, it's head of Northwestern Europe. So the globe is a big place. I've got a small chunk of that for Fujitsu. And I've got a very clever team that work with me doing that. But uh, yeah, ultimately, uh, I head up the innovation team. Great stuff. Uh, Fujitsu, of course, is a, a household name. Uh, in various parts of the world, yeah, an absolutely huge organisation that, that that has a hand in everything, uh, air conditioners to mm. cloud cloud computing. Um, can you can you tell us a bit about uh, how innovation happens in a company like Fujitsu and 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 how it spreads? How does it percolate? Yeah, I'm fairly fairly new to that uh, 84 year old company. I've been in for about five years, but um, from my perspective, it's very human centric. Well, what does human centric mean? It's a bit of a posh term, isn't it? But really, it's it's all about the humanity side of innovation. So, whilst Fujitsu is a massive global business doing lots of things, as you said, from air conditioners and uh, one of the largest IT companies in the world, my side of the house is really all about pursuing the human centric innovation. So that's trying to make the human life easier. Believe it or not, it's it's almost altruistic. Um, we're not quite a charity, but ultimately, um, that is the motto and the actual um, uh, the main theme of innovation when it comes to Fujitsu. It's to pursue betterment of humanity. And that could be as simple as making a task easier, giving more time back to people, or making their lives less painful with mundane tasks. So it's quite a simple um, uh, description, that. I'm, I'm sure we'll go into some more detail about innovation, but ultimately, it should make our lives better. And given the title of the podcast, we have a cloud focus, but obviously cloud is just like a way of achieving things. So can you tell us more about the sort of problems that you're uh, trying to tackle through this innovation, the sort of customers you're working with? 
Yeah, it's no different from the rest of the world. There's going to be no surprises in my answer, but ultimately, uh, my customers, um, global as they are, of course, they could be multinational companies, they could be uh, non-government organizations, they could be charities, and I do work for all of those, um, all the aforementioned. Um, they generally are looking for innovation. Of course, the definition of innovation is something new, but not always new. Sometimes it can be a blend of things brought together or newish things, shall we say. So ultimately, we do get challenge statements brought to us. I think you used the word problem there. Um, I think I was taught by our marketing people never to use negative language, but I don't always follow the marketing people. So when it comes to um, challenges, as we call them in uh, Fujitsu, we have them coming from all sectors, all business areas, uh, again, even into charities. And ultimately, we try and define that challenge statement, call it a problem statement if you wish, at the beginning to try and encapsulate what we're trying to do in a really simple statement. And once we've got that statement, you know, solve world hunger, cure COVID, those kind of simple statements, we then extrapolate using all sorts of, well, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, agile technologies and agile methodologies um, to then build something, whether that's a model or a prototype or an MVP. But the end game, of course, for Fujitsu and myself is to bring that human-centric angle. But to your point, Alid, how do you do that with velocity and, uh, and the ease? And the answer, of course, has been cloud. So I guess since about 2007, we've been harnessing that to make our lives much easier, to stand up nice prototypes and stand up nice little models very quickly and expensively. I like that word being Scottish. Um, so that's, that's, that's where we come in with cloud. We can do things much faster, more velocity, um, far more agile than we used to do pre-cloud. So you're working with some very big customers there. Now, uh, there's a popular conception and historically, like small companies are better at innovation than large companies. Uh, so how do you help these big customers to actually you know, move quickly and solve these challenges quickly? It's mm, a good question, I guess. Um, I guess I would bite the apple by saying mm, even big companies are just a collection of small companies. So if you look at large conglomerates, generally speaking, if you analyze them, they're just a series of smaller companies within one big, big wrapper. Um, yes, they function slightly differently, but I think the sea has changed, the tide has changed, and there's an appetite now for, especially with cloud, for working with many smaller partners. So if you take a look at cloud and cloud native, we're going to drop our gear now and talk technical, aren't we? Um, things like microservices, which is really just a posh word for using lots of different companies, isn't it? Um, knitting that together is the new normal, whereas before you might have gone to a large SI, sorry, systems integrator. I'll try not to use abbreviations. Um, and I'd say that world isn't dead. There's still SI still exists, but I would say the new norm is now certainly the more micro rather than macro approach, whereby smaller moving parts, microservices, smaller companies can build things in an agile fashion and deliver on the, um, the end game, uh, ultimately tower contracts, uh, waterfall projects, large SIs, not dead, but certainly there's a new way forward. I don't know if you're seeing that yourself. Yeah, that's very much um, finger on the pulse thinking about how to deliver, how to deliver projects. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the process that you described, starting with a problem statement, which again, I think is interesting because a, a lot of innovators, they seem to put the cart before the horse oftentimes they'll 
develop a solution that is then looking for a problem. Whereas it's refreshing to hear you say you start with a problem, sorry, a challenge, and then work towards a solution. And of course, the way you deliver that solution is incrementally following an agile approach. You, you mentioned the the MVP, the proof of concept. So once once the MVP exists or the proof of concept has proved concept. Uh, how, how do you then roll that out? How do you commercialize that and productize that across a big company or a government agency? Uh, the money question, it always goes back to money, doesn't it? Yeah. So I mentioned human centricity and the human centric angle, but of course we must make a buck. People have People's costs must be covered. So when it comes to innovation, um, effectively we are uh, treating that as a cost center, not a profit center. But if we can take an innovation, you know, invent the light bulb and do something successful, you want to go horizontal. You want to sell that thing and you want to move it to as many parties as possible. So um, I've got a cutoff in my job whereby we produce models, prototypes and MVPs and if something is proven as successful and repeatable, i.e. we build a wheel, we invent the wheel, we'll take that to our production factory. So we have, uh, obviously, uh, product managers, what we would call um, a production line, effectively, that can then take that to a wider audience and monetize it, ideally. Um, but to your point, um, we have to uh, produce things in an iterative fashion. We have to, we have to deliver um, that with change these days. It's not a waterfall approach, there's your product and bye-bye. Um, ultimately, things move so swiftly. I think every application changes daily these days. Um, so we are still involved when it comes to production um, because they may want to add on something, a widget, agile later on. Um, but ultimately, there is a handoff period between model, MVP, prototype. They then have to hand off to a production line, a product manager, and a way of monetizing. Um, I think from a, a government perspective, you mentioned the government word there. Um, well, from that perspective, we tend not to create government products. There'll be solutions. So that's not something that will go horizontal in terms of sale. It'll be a point solution for a, for a government. And at that point, we tend to stay engaged. There's that handoff period. Um, nothing ever dies, effectively. There's been a lot of interesting stuff uh, written and communicated over the years about the diffusion of innovation. And uh, I'm guessing that this is a subject quite dear to your heart, you know, pr promoting innovation and seeing it flourish, seeing it, seeing it go from proof of concept to actually delivering value to people. But as, of course, we know, um, whether it's from crossing the chasm or, or other kind of seminal seminal works, you know, the innovator's dilemma. Innovations don't always percolate smoothly through an organization. There are often mismatched expectations or um, points of resistance, particularly in large organizations. How do you overcome resistance, whether it's for an MVP uh, internal to Fujitsu or whether it's, you know, maybe adopting a technology like cloud computing where, mm -hmm. you know, CloudSoft in our consultancy efforts, we do still encounter resistance to certain technologies. Yeah, I think about maybe five, six years ago, not everybody was aware or on the cloud. And there was a bit of a pushback, wasn't there, from certain sectors. Uh, I would say in 2021 that we are certainly ubiquitously using cloud in every single customer. Uh, but in terms of pushback, yeah, let's 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 analyze that a little bit. We we keep hearing the term fail fast and we must we must fail to learn. But how many of us in our monthly report <laughs> would put in a failure? It's it is a culture, isn't it? Now I think that we just gotta keep pushing those boundaries and uh, you know, I don't learn until I fail. It, that's that still happens at my age. And um, anybody that says otherwise is either selling to you or lying to you, I think. So ultimately, we try to be really transparent with our customers. And of course, the best way to do that is 
iteratively. Nothing worse than explaining at the end of a project that waterfall that has failed, whereas halfway through, if you can explain that there's, uh, there's some bumps in the road, but we're going to share those bumps with you, we're going to work those bumps through with you, it's just a much better way of working. Um, so we find absolute collaboration. We call it co-creation in Fujitsu. It's not a, a dictionary word that we've, uh, we own, but co-creation is where we work hand in glove with our customer to write that challenge statement all the way through to delivering it as a product in between building a model and a prototype. So it's really about being close to the customer and the whole collaboration piece. And ultimately, modern tools these days allow that. So I can collaborate with Slack or I can collaborate with Teams or, of course, any IDE when it comes to coding. But ultimately, those didn't exist back, back in the day. Um, and now we've got that. We are the, A recent project I worked on, I think we had six external suppliers across about six continents. You just could not do that without the modern day tooling of modern day um, multi-access uh, IDEs and um, collaboration tools like Slack. Don't want to make an advert for those guys, but ultimately, you know, it's something that has changed the tide. Um, cloud has enabled the agility. The customers more open to working together. I feel there's a new age in terms of working with customers. It's a much better way of working. I think the old days of getting a bid sent across the fence, thrown across the fence, that's got to die. Yeah. And I think that fail fast you were saying about before is and learn from failure is so important. Like um, I really like the analogy that AWS and Amazon use about the, is this a one-way or a two-way door? So if something's a two-way door, you can try something out. If it doesn't work, step back through that door no harm done. And mm. with that kind of culture, you can encourage experimentation and thus expect failure. When something's a one-way door, when it's a decision that's incredibly hard to reverse, such as releasing a product for which you're going to give back compatibility guarantees, then you're incredibly more cautious about what level of reviews, what level of decision-making process goes into this. Um, but you know, so when you're working with your customers on this, like presumably there's a lot of potential different avenues that you could explore. There's going to be lots of dead ends that you go down and so on. So yeah, how do you manage that with your customer? Um, or are you dividing it into small teams or experimenting different ways? Or uh, yeah, how do you manage it? Well, I think part of failing fast, it's an easy it's an easy term to say two simple words, fail fast, but what does it really mean? Well, you know, halfway through a project, we will pivot. Again, a simple English word meaning we will change our minds. We will speak with a product owner or a business owner, and we will try and change the direction of that ship if it's going in the wrong direction. And it's about honesty in doing that. And people just appreciate honesty in this day and age. We're not selling an innovation. We're working together to build something that actually works. And, and it's without that absolute honesty that, that you just cannot propel and survive. So for me, it's been a, a landmark end to my career in terms of working in innovation. I'm not quite at the end, but ultimately it's a different way of working, as I say, from the, the old bid or waterfall way of working. It's much more refreshing and certainly collaborative with the customer. Um, I'll give you a good example. So, you know, I've worked with the government all my life um, and that's been an experience, shall we say. Uh, it can be one that can last quite a long time in terms of um, putting something on the ground, shall we say. I'm talking politely here. But with innovation, um, I'm seeing that the government, for example, are willing to actually try things in a, in a, with a higher velocity um, because the risk there is lesser because you can pivot quickly, you can recover, you can fail fast. With a waterfall project for the government of old, well, no, you're going to be stuck with something that's cost a lot that maybe doesn't work. You know, we, those days are, are literally dead now. Um, so this new way of working resonates with customers. You use the term government first, but it's a good example. 
Yeah, absolutely. That that freedom to change your mind, whether you call it a one-way door or learning from failure. Um, I, I see the cloud as being a great enabler of that. You know, we, we no, we're no longer stuck with upfront huge capital costs to get a project off the ground. Um, we can just rent incredible, incredibly innovative, to come back to your to your job title, David, incredibly innovative products and services that we can consume uh, through a web portal with a credit card on a pay-as-you-go basis to really try lots and lots and lots of rapid experimentation. Um, you know, the lean startup mantra is build, measure, learn. And I, to, to my mind, there's no quicker way to build, measure, and learn than getting an MVP up in the cloud, getting it in front of your customers and seeing how they respond to it. Well, for me, I think the the cloud is the best place to play, isn't it, and try. I mean, there's a great term, I've, I've, you've probably heard this one, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I guess that really means just try it. You don't, be, don't be scared to put things up there. And obviously, you're going to make them secure. You're going to ring fence them, zero trust models and such like. But ultimately, you can throw things up very quickly, see what sticks, and then pivot and show the customer iterations and work with the customer that way. But just to get back to the the money point, being Scottish, there's a few Scottish voices on here, um, albeit we're in different locations. That velocity of build is one thing, but also the tracking of that cost is something that's very important to my world because when we're throwing up hundreds of innovations on the cloud, some will stick and some won't. Those costs still have to be tracked. Somebody still has to pay. So having the ability to track that is, is a challenge for me going forward, but it's something that we constantly have to work towards. So velocity brings velocity of bills as well. And the tracking of those can be a, a bit of a nightmare. But uh, obviously the, the, the hyperscalers are moving more towards friendliness in that area. I think I saw Azure today announcing they're bringing out nice friendly APIs for billing uh, to monetize or arbitrage prices across uh, services across the globe. And I think they need to. They've got something like, what, 50 plus regions and 6,000 services. So for me, uh, velocity is good, but being Scottish, it's important to keep a track of those costs because my customer will have to bear that at some stage if they go into production. Yep. And dealing with cloud bills is a, <laughs> a massive, painful process when you get uh, to the level of like large bills, cost allocation, and so on. So uh, are you generally running this in the Fujitsu accounts or helping the customer to understand their own bills or a mixture of both? Oh, yeah. So custom customers are very savvy these days. They have their own cloud accounts. So we will offer cloud hosting and cloud um, landing zones, for example, where we can set that up for customers. But ultimately, customers sometimes want it on their own premises. Or when I say that, their own cloud premises, I mean their own tenants. Um, so tracking that can be a difficult uh, issue when it comes to cost, especially when you get down to functions and serverless, your lambdas and Azure functions. That is a new world order when it comes to charging. Um, so again, transparency with the customer is really important. If you sit somebody down and model through uh, a transaction that's going through a Lambda engine, yeah, monetizing that is something that's done open book, a sales term meaning we don't hide anything. We have to show them all the moving parts because it's a complex thing to charge for, but uh, it's, it's, it's literally brought the cost of innovation down where before you'd build something in a waterfall fashion and it wasn't fit for purpose. Now we can very quickly stand up uh, as I say, uh, innovation in literally days. Yeah, that not having to request hardware and wait six weeks for it to arrive uh, and having to buy that in advance, like, yeah, all of that is fantastic for being able to experiment at lower costs. Of course, when it enters production and is running 24-7, like at that point, 
yeah, it costs are a whole different consideration as to how you handle these. Mm. But yeah, coming back to those costs for the customer, um, a recurring theme we have with enterprise customers is uh, the finance teams struggling to adjust their way of thinking for mm. cloud. Uh, and it's not just about like CapEx versus OpEx. They get that. Um, it's about the the forecastability, the fact that procurement no longer have a say about whether costs actually will be incurred or not. Uh, and then uh, even understanding the bill that comes in mm. uh, is incredibly hard. Like there are good best practices in place uh, that uh, various folk write about. The FinOps Foundation has uh, produced a lot of good advice on this. Uh, but yeah, it's just fundamentally very hard for a, a finance team to adjust the way of thinking for that. Yes, I mean, our, our modern procurement teams are, are being retrained in all sorts of uh, models around that at the moment. I mean, it's not quite got to the stage where they're pricing uh, functions as a service or, or, or Lambda-type functions on a, on a microsecond because contracts have to still exist because you need some longevity for uh, safety. But ultimately, our procurement people and our, 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 um, our back, back room people have to get their heads around things like, what's the term, these non-fungible tokens. How do, you, how do you charge for non-fungible tokens going forward in the blockchain world? It's a modern, modern, modern painful thing to even begin to get into uh, when we've just uh, moved away from virtual machines into containers. So lots of challenges there. But um, uh, again, open book, working collaboratively, does tend to get us forward versus that hidden cost tower contract type um, uh, legacy waterfall method. But yeah, we, we're talking a little bit money here. You can tell there's a Scottish contingent, can you? Yeah. Uh, the other big topic that comes up with the enterprise is when you're actually trying to do anything in the cloud or elsewhere is security. Mm. Uh, and uh, although be it AWS or Azure or whichever cloud provider you're choosing uh, offers you this fantastic toolbox which you can uh, make use of, you can also shoot yourself in the foot with that toolbox quite effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, and enterprises in particular are very keen to have guardrails in place, uh, old school thinking sometimes where security teams want to have sign off before things actually get released. Uh, and yeah, this risks hampering that innovation. Mm -hmm. So yeah, how do you work with those security teams? Yes, Alan, that's a very good question. I think my answer there is we apply technology to that velocity. So when it comes to applying security uh, and checks and balances, our old school methods don't work. You cannot have pen tests running every five seconds. So we've adopted uh, in the agile world and innovation, um, the ability to check real time code as it's been written. Now, I know that sounds a little bit scary, uh, the robots taking over, but with byte stream injection, we have systems that can actually check for code vulnerabilities as the code is released in the pipeline. Whether that's looking at packaging for open source packages that are out of date, that's at the simple end, right through to looking for vulnerabilities such as scanning for SQL injection or anything of that ilk. So almost a in-flight, real-time check and balance on security. And we had to adopt that because cloud is, well, high velocity. Yeah, um, and getting that those tools and checks in place is one part of it, but persuading the security team that they should now be happy and, and let you continue your work, we still find is a challenge, particularly when uh, dealing with enterprises who have come from an on-prem environment mm -hmm either early stage cloud migration or uh, yeah, that they haven't been there too long, they still think in terms of uh, appliances and protecting the perimeter and 
uh, security reviews and and gates for, well, particularly for production. So if you can work in a sandbox environment that's locked off, if you can ensure there's no uh, personal identifying information and so on, I guess that puts you in a better place where you can innovate. Um, yeah, from my perspective, I am seeing change. I'm seeing some positive change from our customer base. I mean, take a you know secure sector such as banking or government, they are beginning to really open up into the cloud. Now, obviously, the, the security isn't lesser. Um, it's still a zero trust model. But ultimately, uh, they know what to put in the cloud and when not to put something in the cloud. So there is still a decision-making process there. Technology can mitigate so much. Um, I mentioned, obviously, about you know, code checking real time. That's one example. But when it comes to the um, protection of those cloud systems, I am seeing more and more going into the cloud. So it's really encouraging, actually, to see some of the government systems that have gone online in my world recently. Um, and I find that uh, quite encouraging. The technology hasn't changed enormously. We're still doing geofencing, maybe in a, using a software load balancer versus that appliance, to your point. So technologies haven't changed massively, but you can still apply that security rigor. Um, but yes, the security guys do have a bit more of a job in terms of velocity. Yeah, and I think I think it's human nature that people will continue to reach for the tools and techniques that have made them successful to date. So, so if a firm has used a an F five big IP box and it's kept them safe for mm. ten or fifteen years, then of course they're going to feel a natural draw to using those virtual appliances, you know, like for like virtual replacements uh, when they adopt cloud. Whereas the industry, the startups, the the young upstarts in the industry who don't have that legacy mindset, mm. don't have that fixed infrastructure, appliance-based view of delivering products and services, will instinctively reach for the cloud-native toolbox. Mm. I mean, ultimately, I, mean, I think everybody on this call knows this, everybody listening would know this as well, you get inherently better protection with the cloud. I mean, the, the sheer scale, I mean, I think we had a conversation last week, Alad, around uh, just the protectionism, the durability of storage, for example. Um, although I do have one slightly amusing story, now I've announced an amusing story, it won't be amusing at all, however, I don't trust the cloud with my photographs. I keep all my photographs locally. Now, that just could be sheer stupidity when you've got durability levels of 11 nines in the cloud, but it's just old school. I like to have a copy here and with my family. But ultimately, I know that the replicas, the parity, the data erasure protection allows for 11 nines durability on my photographs if I keep them in the cloud. And it's that mindset that I've got to convince my customers to trust um, whether it's security protection or whether it's durability of um, storage, it is there. And of course, you could never achieve that with on-premise because you've got single instance. And there's no N plus one. If there's N plus one, you're doing well. So it's it's an ongoing journey. Um, and I think it's our job to try and make sure we convince people that, um, and that durability, protection, security is actually, it's actually higher in the cloud, um, certainly from a trackability perspective. Yeah, I completely agree that that is the case, but I think that an issue is the defaults often. So if we take AWS S3, uh, 11 nice durability is absolutely amazing. But if somebody goes in and accidentally deletes an object from S3, like versioning isn't on by default, you've lost that forever. Um, and how familiar are people with, uh, with using S3 at that point for coding errors that might cause that to happen versus knowing that... Uh, like the way you've backed up your photographs at home, uh, you have a tried and trusted process for that. Um, 
So yeah, I, I think that the tools are there to build amazingly reliable, secure systems. Uh, it's just that uh, historically some of those defaults have uh, meant that you need to turn on a bunch of things to get that durability and security uh, if you want to cope with things like you know accidental deletion. Uh, yeah, it's so easy that to spin up a let's take it, spin up a server and just open it to the world because that's the quickest thing to do, um, and nothing's stopping you. Uh, and hopefully, you have some guardrails in place that will uh, you'll get alerts that actually shouldn't open this up to the world uh, mm -hmm. if you're working within a corporation. Uh, but yeah, that sort of education and best practices uh, is uh, so important for actually using the cloud well and properly. It's no secret that we've got a very basic uh, approach to that. We use belt brace and sock suspender, and I'm sure half the audience wonder what a sock suspender is, but ultimately it's threefold. So we, we effectively have well-architected reviews performed by our experts, people like yourselves. Uh, clearly, I, I work with some very clever people, so we can't check our own homework. We will seek a well-architected review to make sure, for example, that durability is enforced for deletion protection, for example. So when it comes to protection in the cloud, it's our first port of call for innovation, velocity, low cost, um, and certainly scalability. Um, so once something is successful, going back to what we were talking about going into production, whether it's for the government or for a banking organization, we trust that model now. The, the customers trust that model now, and you just can't achieve scalability and durability yourself um, unless you really do have a, a small country's worth of hardware. Absolutely. I think I think an understanding of failure modes is is crucial. I mean, we're engineers by and large. So I think we, we can understand that the architecture of a system, the shape of a system affects its failure modes and its overall potential to be made fault tolerant or not. Um, and I'll, I think that that applies whether you're running on premises or across multiple data centers to achieve high availability and fault tolerance, or whether you're reaching for some of the, the managed services in the cloud that will run in multiple locations, like we mentioned S3, mm -hmm. it achieves that that um, legendary durability by making six copies of things and making sure they span multiple mm -hmm. availability zones. Um, so the underlying philosophy is the same, you have to be redundant but by adopting cloud services, which do that redundancy for you and amortize the cost of that over a large user base, we're getting the benefits of good sound engineering practices as a managed service, which is wonderful. And taking it to the nth level, of course, once you've got that, you've had your well-architected review and done your, your homework checking, you then want to throw something extra at it, whether it's a chaos monkey check or something, a spanner in the works check, so that you actually do get proper proper testing, not just DR and standard business continuance testing of old, but throw some spanners in the works, the chaos monkey model. Um, I won't say we do that in innovation too heavily because obviously that adjusts, the, it stops the velocity, but when it comes to production, we absolutely apply that model as well. I think we work with you on some things in that area. And I'd like to I'd like to see more of that going forward, throwing that spanner in the works. So having somebody else throw the spanner in the works is the best test of all mm. and see how cloud and cloud systems and cloud native can recover because it is just a better world with cloud. And I sound uh, like a Coca-Cola advert there. <laughs> I think uh, it's a two-edged sword, of course. I mean, the the old failure modes, the familiar failure modes are often easier to mitigate with the cloud toolbox. But of course, there are new failure modes that have to be considered. You know, if, if you're now relying on Office 365 authentication to provide single sign-on for all your apps, then when 
Office 365 authentication is down, no one can use any of your apps. And we've seen some quite high profile outages in the last few months with that, ex that exact scenario. Systems that have become incredibly interconnected now mean that failures of things that you have no control over or hadn't even considered were part of your system are now serious causes of potential outages. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the standard model now, isn't it? The AAA model, authentication, authorization, and accounting, where you, you have that two-factor login. And if, you, if that's not available and you've not got access to your systems, what is, what is the fallback position? There's a question for this forum. You know, what, is, what do you do? Do you build parallel systems that can temporarily take over? You're not gonna really going to have a fallback on a whole infrastructure for AAA. That's literally going to be too complex. So it's about picking and designing those systems at the beginning. And we have customers that need as many nines as possible. Um, and really, the only way to mitigate that is to have parallel systems. It's the only mitigation um, so that's what we've had to do. Um, Murphy's Law, if it can fail, it will fail. And no matter how distributed you are, um, you can have a distributed geographical cloud system, but if the switch propagates a runt, I think that's an old school word, isn't it? A runt packet across all those switches globally, you'll take it all down. So you need to have some sort of parallel strategy um, for continuance. Uh, and that, that's an old school method, but unfortunately, you know, we, we, that, that's the only way to actually mitigate that. Um, however, um, the, the, the benefits that cloud have brought to my customers and velocity, especially when it comes to data availability, that, that is um, enormously um, accepted now. I don't think there's anybody that would fight that, uh, that at all. Of course, there are still challenges in terms of synchronicity, in terms of having data synchronized. Light is light speed. That's not changing anytime soon. Um, and I think that when it comes to those 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 measures of um, loss, shall we call them, whether it's jitter, whether it's latency, or whether it's actually losing data. Um, okay, we've managed to mitigate that with cloud, but people still want to achieve more. I've had some customers just ask, I don't want any loss on anything. And that's a hard one to, to, to respond to. Yeah, we, we get that as well. When you, you try and have the conversation about, well, what, what is your acceptable RPO mm. and RTO, and they go, well, what's RPO and RTO? And you explain the, con the, explain the concepts, and they say, well, it has to be zero. Mm. Well, you can't actually achieve zero in practice. You know, to quote another famous fictitious Scotsman, I can't kind of change the laws of physics, Captain. Well, I'm not sure he was fictitious, but yeah, I do agree with him. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, thankfully, our customers are, are, are quite accepting now of, of the laws of physics, and it's good that they do that. Um, again, back to my point, once explained, once walked through, once collaborated on, as opposed to delivering some sort of bid-type contract where they just get something delivered at the end, you can work hand-in-glove with the customer to explain the vagaries of durability of storage and availability and latency and such like. But I guess the world's changing its speed, isn't it? I was reading this morning about how our telecommunications networks are going to be switching off PSDN shortly. So whilst we're digital, they will no longer have that wire connection per se. It will be rooted networks and such like. So yeah, it's a, it's a brave new world. But again, checks and balances, well-architected reviews. It's the old school methods that keep things running effectively. Yeah, and I do love the power that the cloud gives us to build those highly available systems. Like if we want to get a five nines reliability uh, or trying to aim even higher than that, then yeah, we can run across uh, multiple regions within AWS, for example. We can rely upon uh, AWS kind of separating out those failure domains. Uh, we can fail over between those. We can set up replication between those uh, global regions. Like it's all a lot of work uh, to configure all of this stuff, like the building block 
blocks are there. Uh, but just because you've got building blocks doesn't mean it's quick to build. It's just quicker than it was on-prem. Mm. Um, but I think the other side of that is we often talk with uh, smaller enterprises who act like the giants, and they act as though they need this level of 5.9 reliability, which isn't at all true for them, really. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's a nuanced conversation that they would need to have with our customers. Uh, so, for example, if they've got... Uh, end users, like those end users don't have a particularly reliable internet connection. Their internet connection is not five nines. So no single customer is going to experience five nines reliability to your service anyway. So how much engineering resource should you really put in to trying to deliver five nines uh, for your service when nobody's going to notice that you're doing it? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, saying that, like, yeah, there are use cases and customers who absolutely need as reliable as they can possibly get. It's just uh, persuading those who don't need that uh, to think about the problem in different ways is often a challenging conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, without, without wanting to talk over our guest, sorry, David. Okay. Um, another, I think, think you, you alluded to something else that we see, and that is startups uh, embracing cloud, which is great, so it's an enabler, but trying to apply the techniques that the big guys Netflix, Google, mm. have embraced to achieve humongous global scale. And I think it's worth pointing out that not everybody needs that scale. Some companies will never need that scale. They'll be very successful, very lucrative businesses without ever achieving the scale of Netflix or Google. Um, the the well-published tools and techniques that these companies have used to achieve massive scale, you shouldn't reach for them as a first resort. Um, and we sometimes see this when people are considering containers for the first time mm. and they instinctively reach for Kubernetes. Now, you can get a lot of value from containerizing your workloads without having to bite off all of Kubernetes, which is a whole other a whole other ecosystem, a whole other way of thinking in itself. And it's great, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not dissing Kubernetes, but you don't need to bite off everything that the big guys have done in order to be successful. Oh, no, I'll, I'll be very honest. I mean, you did mention the Stephen Fry buzzword there by saying Kubernetes, I think, by the way. I mean, what the wall flashed light up when you said Kubernetes. Um, yeah. I'll not mention it again. So, but from a container perspective, you know, we, you can break rules in innovation because it's modeling, it's MVP, it's prototype. So the cardinal rule, or one of the cardinal rules of containers is try not to multi-stack them, otherwise you're back to a monolithic fat VM. But we do that sometimes. We'll put maybe a couple of demons and processes on a container when you really should have a single process model. But for innovation, not such a problem. Comes to production, we'll separate those out again. So there is some flexibility there to your point. It's not all about following the rules rigidly, having that model that thou shalt built in this way. Get it working, prove the concept, make sure the customer's happy, then industrialize it, separate out the container processes, et cetera, and apply all the nice uh, ECS, uh, IKEA, EKS, all the the acronyms for the Kubernetes services. I'm not going to name them because that'd be an advert. But um, yeah. There is flexibility there in innovation. That's what makes my job a little less pressure-filled when it comes to delivery, um, because I ultimately can hand that across to the uh, the clever people like you when it comes to uh, production services, I guess. Yeah. So uh, thinking about um, the digital and tech innovation that's been happening recently, has anything in particular like caught your eye or excited you uh, a lot Um like the rate of innovation is huge. So there's a lot to choose from here. <laughs> so can you pick out any uh, one or two things there that particularly yeah. interest you? 
Well, I'm a bike nut. I think Alistair knows that. So anything that comes in that's to do with bicycling, I tend to gravitate towards those innovations. But I'm not going to bore the bore you guys again today with my uh, biking stories. But I think going back to the start of the, we were talking about human centricity, the theme of human centric innovation, trying to do something good gives you a bit of a buzz. I mean, um, I told you I've worked for the government in the past. If you follow the TV, which I'm sure you do these days, you can't get away from it with COVID briefings. Um, Priti Patel, our Home Secretary, she's made mention recently of um, our unit, Fujitsu, you know, helping the government in these troubled times. Um, public mention of that is nice because you're exonerated for doing something that's not just commercial, um, it's doing something perhaps for the betterment of mankind. I know it sounds a little bit <laughs> over-altruistic, but it, it is a nice thing when you do something you think, well, that's actually doing some human good. Um, I could name a couple of examples of that. I think we're doing a, a good project um, with the Home Office um, at the moment, and that's around the domestic abuse um, cases and how we're bringing IT support to that. Um, ultimately, um, we're doing small solutions, not just large solutions. So as you can imagine, everybody's phoning their um, their GP at the moment, asking about their COVID test. They're asking about, you know, COVID. Our poor receptionists in the uh, GP surgeries are inundated at the moment. So we're putting together nice, nice humanistic solutions, such as personal chatbots to alleviate those poor receptionists that are getting uh, all the questions thrown at them, such as when's my test? It's the most often asked question. And they're taking thousands of calls a day. So applying a little bit of cognitive AI there, personal chatbots, just make somebody's life easier. It's not going to make a lot of money, but a bit of human good. I mentioned the domestic abuse stuff. It's it's altruistic and it's it's rewarding. Um, we're also doing some work in the COVID area of testing as well, trying to reduce the COVID testing time. As you know, we've got uh, PCR tests or sorry, bio tests that take days. I've had one. We've got uh, fast flow tests, which take 30 minutes. And we're now working with the government to actually explore doing automated testing of uh, voice patterns where you can actually, believe it or not, through an MIT algorithm, you can actually deter and detect COVID uh, even in asymptomatic patients. So all these, uh, these, these examples I'm throwing at you here, they're, 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 not, they're not money-making ideas. These are effectively providing some good back, but it's just so rewarding to work on them because, well, it sometimes feels nice to give something back. Here, here. I think we're innovation it seems to be popping up everywhere from from every sector big companies are learning to innovate you know the, the term uh intrapreneurship mm. which make, makes me cringe slightly but it's it's the idea of entrepreneurial activities inside a large org as well as you know the the upstarts aren't going anywhere We've, we're you know seeing more more companies than ever before launching and taking on the big guys um lots of interesting industry trends around you know technologies that we can now reach for in the cloud toolkit, whether it's IoT or, you know, 5G seems to be the big buzzwords. And I hope since getting your, your vaccine, David, I hope your 5G signal has improved if the conspiracy theorists are to be believed. But there seems to be this convergence of smart devices, IoT, using 5G to connect to, you know, low latency backbone, high-speed internet, and then having machine learning algorithms chunder through all this data that is coming from everywhere. Um, is there anything in that space that excites you or that Fujitsu is is uh, getting excited about? Yeah, so we're, we're getting big into personal 5G, which is obviously where you've got Pico cells all around you that can take that data. So it takes my heart rate and sends it to the doctor saying he's got a arrhythmia coming on. You must give him a bit of a phone because he's going to collapse shortly. Now, you can't do that without high bandwidth networks and certainly um, with Pico cells everywhere, that'll help. 
Um, ultimately, we talked earlier about how the PSTN network's being replaced. It's digital today, but ultimately it's going to go full-on VoIP, isn't it? Um, so that digitalization end-to-end from monitoring my wristband to sending that to the doctor requires all these great technologies. And each part of that, every company might have a, have a hand in. And it's nice just to be involved in the innovation and trying to bring these jigsaw pieces together. Ultimately, we don't get the whole, the whole jigsaw picture put together, but we contribute to each little piece. And in the personal um, the 5G area, that's exploding at the moment um, because those high bandwidth networks, whether it's an IoT sensor that's um, looking at water, water use in your house or monitoring your heart, ultimately the bandwidth's gonna go through the roof to your point if they don't burn down the 5G transmitters to your point. Um, but yeah, that's exploding left, right and center. I think if you all were to be honest in your house right now and look around and count the digital devices that have an IP address, I don't know what the mean is these days, but I think a lot of the average houses are probably hovering around 30. So it's just gonna get bigger. But again, for the betterment of society, because I do want my mother's heart rate sent to the doctor, maybe not mine, but it'd be nice to have notification that she's having a, a cardiac arrest and I can do something about it. These are literally humanistic things. And um, I'm really pleased to be part of an organization that actually has that as its mantra, uh, not selling the organization, but it's, it's primarily for human-centric good. Um, and I think we all agree that's got to be a good thing for technology. And I think that's an excellent place to end it then. Uh, thanks very much for joining our podcast. It's been really interesting to hear about the innovation that you and Fujitsu are doing and talk about that sort of wider space. So if people want to find out more about uh, your thinking and what you're up to, anywhere that you'd like to direct people towards? Yeah, we've got a website, of course. Um, we're always happy to speak to people about innovation. It doesn't cost anything to talk, and um, we encourage those conversations. And if you do have a human-centric uh, solution, innovation idea, please speak to us because that's a great angle. David, thank you so much. It's always it's always a pleasure crossing paths with you and having an interesting chat. So, thanks for sharing it with our with our audience today. Thank you very much. Thanks. Likewise. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed our first episode. Don't forget to subscribe to get updates on future episodes. And if you have any feedback, or if there are topics you'd like us to cover, just let us know in the comments or on our socials. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, all the usual suspects. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.